This episode contains themes of bushfire, addiction and trauma. If this episode raises any issues for you, we advise you to seek support from Lifeline or another help service. Like many other arts organisations, this month we've had to adapt to COVID-19, closing cultural institutions, cancelling some of our favourite events and threatening the very health and livelihoods of many artists and friends. At the time of recording this podcast, events of more than 100 people were cancelled and Arts Hub was encouraging our staff to work from home, which is where I'm recording this from. We urge you to look after your health and to stay up to date with changes by checking artshub.com.au where we'll be publishing information on cancellations and anything else we can find about how the arts will be supported during this difficult time. This month, we're looking at recovery because on the other side of coronavirus, we will need to know how to get better and to heal. Welcome to the Arts Hubbub, a monthly look inside Australian arts and artists. I'm your host, George Dunford. This month, we're looking at how we recover, how artists repair after shock, trauma, or other pain in their lives, but also how art and pain can inspire change. Judith Lucy tells us how she's recovering from men after years of being afflicted by them. She tells us how she has thrived as a comedian by sharing the hard-to-hear parts of her own life. For The Nudge, we speak with artists who have survived loss after bushfires and recovered from drug addiction. What helped them keep going and rebuild? Comedian Judith Lucy has made some of her best comedy from some of the most difficult moments of her life. Her 2008 memoir, The Lucy Family Alphabet, opens with A is for adoption and doesn't let up on the honesty and hilarity from there. She chatted with our performing arts editor, Richard Watts, about the art of comedy, knowing where to draw the line on stage, and the encore season of her 2019 show, Judith Lucy vs. Men. We started out by asking, now that she seems to have sworn off dating, does she consider herself a recovering heterosexual? Oh, I mean, but recovering heterosexual makes it sound like I've got somewhere to go. And I just, I think it's just, I just need to stop, Richard. I think it's just that I need to stop. There's not a support group. There's not, you know, and God knows if I had a dollar for every time someone said to me, well, you're just batting for the wrong team. I know I am. I know I am. But I just like penises and there's simply nothing I can do about it. It has been hilarious doing that show because, as I think you would know, the gist of it is I tell many stories about appalling experiences I've had with men and then I get the audience to vote on whether I should ever date again. I've done that show many, many times now, Richard. The audience votes that I should keep dating every single time. So, you know, I... Is that because everyone just believes in the fairy tale and thinks that especially if you're a middle-aged heterosexual woman, your life must be very sad if you're alone? Uh, Or is it because people just want me to keep having dreadful experiences and producing shows about them? It's really hard to say. Maybe it's just because they've been following your comedy for so many years that they're willing you to be happy. I want to believe that. I do want to believe that. And I actually, I am going to say that I do feel incredibly lucky in that, you know, I, I know some people have been coming to see my shows for a really long time and, um, you know, 
that kind of blows me away sometimes. And so I feel like we're all kind of growing older together. And and I have to say that because I do share a lot of my life on stage, one of the best things about doing my job is that people really feel that they can come up and share their stories with me. So that's great. I mean, I know it sounds really dicky, but I honestly do feel like I have a great audience and a really great relationship with them and I'm, I count my lucky stars about that all the time. I've been single for almost 20 years and I think Well you ca- done. Well done. Hats off. A couple of flings in there, but uh, the last year is relationship 20 years ago and I don't really miss dating that much. I don't miss the drama. Do you think there's too much focus in our culture on yes. on yes. relationships? Yes, I do. I absolutely do. I think it's particularly bad for women. Uh, I think it's particularly bad for straight women. But, yeah, across the board I absolutely do. And I think people just often assume that if you're not in a relationship that that's not a choice and that there is something lacking and yet, while, of course, I know some people in great relationships and I've been in a couple of lovely relationships, I know a lot of people in crummy ones and I know a lot of people who I think stay in a relationship because that seems preferable than being on your own. But I would so much rather be on my own than going out with another dead shit. Now, speaking of dead shits, you've talked publicly about the fact that you had a boyfriend who'd been stealing from you before breaking up with you. You've talked about discovering that you were adopted on Christmas Day when you were 25, when it was blurted out by your sister-in-law. You've written and talked about the worst year of your life, including the death of your brother. You've talked about spirituality on, on television. There's so much that you have aired publicly. Clearly there must be limits to what you are willing to share, but how do you know for yourself where to draw the line? Have you ever felt in your own career that you've crossed a line, not perhaps for what you were uncomfortable about revealing, but what may impact on other people in your life? I've always tried to be really careful about that, to be honest. Even when I used to do a lot of stuff about my parents, I would if I thought something would bother them, I would actually ring them up and ask them. And generally in books and most things, I've always tried to make it about me. If it really does involve someone else, um, I will generally show them the manuscript and make sure it's okay. And even talking about this latest breakup, I have honestly tried to reveal as little about that as I can because I do still care for the person involved. I didn't feel I could do the show without saying what had happened, but I I say in the show I still think he's a really decent person, you know. Um, so I do try and be careful about that. In terms of overstepping the line for me, I have done that a couple of times and you only ever realise it when it's too late. Such as in the middle of a show when you realise this is too raw and I'm actually literally still processing it on stage? Yeah, and I really learned that lesson a long time ago, but every now and then it'll still happen. I was talking about this the other night that I um, I look back and, I mean, I did a show about my father dying five months maybe after he died, which involved me getting out of a coffin and talking about it at length every night 
And in the middle of touring that show, my mother died. And then, of course, I, I put that in the show. And I just look back on that and think, I wonder if I was having a nervous breakdown because <laughs> I was certainly drunk for two years apart from when I was on stage. So that was a bit silly. And I must say this latest show, I'm absolutely fine with it now, but when I first started doing Jews Lucy versus Men, I don't think I was quite far enough along in the grieving process there either, to be honest. So it's a lot funnier now. Although Judith makes it look easy, comedy is a tough gig and it can take a toll on a comedian's mental health. Actors can blame the occasional bad review on a poor script or bad direction, but for comedians, it's a lot more personal. There's nowhere to hide. So why are comedians drawn to such a challenging art form? just really screwed up people are attracted to comedy. What I do think is, yes, what you said in terms of the difference between an actor and a comedian I think is absolutely spot on. I mean, of course, I would imagine it would be terrible to walk off having done Hedda Gabler and, you know, to be panned. But absolutely, if people don't like you, that's completely different because, yeah, it's if they're not laughing at your jokes, it's very hard not to take that personally. And because you do obviously put a big part of yourself on stage and you're talking about, well, a lot of us do talk about what's happening in our personal lives. I think that is part of it. But I also think that part of it is because we talk so much about what's going on, I think comedians are more likely to tell you that they're anxious and depressed. So... Yeah, I think there there is maybe an idea that it's more prevalent in comedy, but I think we just really like banging on about ourselves, whatever is going on. I went through a pretty hideous period too, which I have talked about, of just having shocking panic attacks on stage, and that became pretty debilitating. So I really thought about it then, but the horrible truth was I simply had nothing to fall back on apart from the, the whole sandwich hand thing, which was fine when I was in my 20s, but it's it's just not something I can return to as a nearly 52-year-old. But yeah, I mean... The thing about it too I find is I actually am generally fine once I'm on stage, especially now, but it's it's actually, yeah, the anxiety that you experience during the day before you go on stage and when you're doing a lot of touring, when you're spending time, a lot of time on your own in hotel rooms, in your own head, well, that why lies madness, Richard, and every now and then I have felt that I was going a little bit mad. But... I can say, after having very seriously thought about giving it all away and thinking maybe I could make money as a celebrant, like a lot of middle-aged female performers do, I think most of the cast of Prisoner is out there, I have come out the other side and I'm currently actually enjoying it more than I probably have in a really long time. So I'm kind of glad I've stuck with it for now. And the great thing and the thing I'm particularly grateful to comedy for is it has allowed me to do other things. Like if I hadn't done stand-up, I wouldn't have done a couple of TV series or written some books or gotten to appear in a couple of movies with Bill Hunter. And, you know, it's because of that that, yeah, I, I, I can never really whinge about comedy because it's been pretty good to me. Right. It doesn't stop me from whinging about it, but it has been good. You do have a new podcast coming out 
overwhelmed and dying, Mm. which sounds like fun. It does sound hilarious, doesn't it? Well, the idea for that, in a nutshell, is that uh, basically I woke up just before I turned 50 and uh, the relationship that you mentioned earlier, that had ended very badly. And, yeah, I think uh, so my brother died, it'll be six years this year, and so I think that was quite clearly when life started to turn to shit. Um, You know, then I was menopausal, then I was feeling really disillusioned with my career, then the relationship ended. You know, it it was all neatly wrapped up in a midlife crisis bow. And, of course, on top of that, the world is fucked. So I honestly just felt kind of paralysed and I think like many people do at the moment I was just doing that thing where I couldn't read the news or listen to it without crying at some point and I just I I, I had this weird feeling of a sense of urgency of wanting to do things wanting to change stuff um, but just not feeling very capable of it so the question I kept coming back to was well God knows if I'm lucky I've got 20 or 30 years left How am I going to spend the rest of my life? So the podcast is me trying to work that out. Since Judith first started performing stand-up comedy, the industry has changed significantly. Changes which she absolutely welcomes. It's still a pretty big cock forest, I'd have to say. Um, I mean, of course, there are so many more. I mean, when I started, it was all straight white men and about two straight women and Sue Ann Post. And so on post a couple of years after I started, I think. And now, yeah, obviously you have gay comedians, you have people of colour, you have people with disabilities. Not many though, not enough. And I'm still going to say not enough ladies, full stop. But compared to what it was, absolutely, it's a huge improvement. Indigenous comedians. I mean, you know, the fact that we have Deadly Funny now. So all of that is obviously a huge improvement, but I would argue we've still got quite a way to go. Judith Lucy talk more about her recovery from personal crisis on her podcast, Overwhelmed and Dying. For 21 years, the National Portrait Gallery has been the home of Australian people and stories. This year, audience favourite, The National Photographic Portrait Prize is joined by the brand new Darling Portrait Prize, showcasing Australia's evolving identity through photography and painting. With one ticket, you'll see two extraordinary exhibitions. Be part of the story at portrait.gov.au. Next up, The Nudge. Ever wanted a coach? Someone to say, keep going, or try something different? Meet The Nudge a coach for your creative practice. Many artists draw from their own lives to create their work. Some even work from their pain as a starting place. So this time on The Nudge, we're looking at how artists repair from trauma, both in their lives and their work. And we wonder, is there a way for artists to explore their trauma safely without it swallowing them up completely? In 2009, Ella Holcomb was about to start her Masters in Creative Writing when the Black Saturday bushfires blazed through Victoria, burning several homes and taking the lives of 173 people. 
So I've always lived in King Lake. And, um, but, yeah, when the fires came through, unfortunately we uh, lost both the house and my mum and dad on that day. Ella and her two brothers lost a place they'd seen their parents build from a shed into their home and entered into a state of shock and seclusion. So we were just kind of in this little bubble of avoidance and togetherness. Um, We didn't watch any of the news coverage. Yeah, avoided the newspapers, avoided the news, avoided the radio, largely avoided people. That response of shutting off is a fight-or-flight kind of reaction, which is the opposite of what can help recovery. And so the way that we um, overcome that or recover from that is through talking and processing and finding ways to express what's happened to us so that we slowly sort of assimilate it to, you know, a framework that enables us to understand what's happened. And if we don't do that, then, of course, we remain in that state of shock and kind of meltdown. That's Professor Jill Bennett, founder of the Big Anxiety Festival and researcher into art and trauma recovery at the University of New South Wales. She emphasises the need for talking as a cure and having a voice. Having a voice and having it heard and understood is critical. So there are two parts to that. There's being able to verbalise and express your own trauma and distress and then being aware that there is a support system, there are people who are hearing you. And if they don't, if they, if they mistake the message or dismiss it, then that can be re-triggering of, of trauma. That re-triggering of trauma was true for Ella, who during the recent bushfires found herself checking the bushfire app in the middle of the night, even though there was no direct threat to her or anyone she knew. Eventually, Ella and her brothers started to put their lives back together, rebuilding their family home. But yeah, the start it was amazing and like each little shoot we'd, you know, take a picture of and and particularly amazing was the stuff that kind of came back itself out of my mum's garden. Like, um, I don't know, just ferns and kangaroo paws and canna lilies and stuff. They were just under the soil there and just kind of went, all right, I'm going to give it another go. It was just like it blew, it blew my mind. Ten years after the fires, Ella wrote The House on the Mountain, a children's book that fictionalised her experience. So that uh, enabled me to write about all the beautiful aspects of my childhood growing up in the bush and kind of also write about the journey that my brothers and I went on in a way with the recovery but not actually have to you know tell the real story. I think the book captured the parts that I wanted and was able to capture and the other bits just have to be saved for you know me and my (laughs) counsellor. Creating art about trauma is a way of reclaiming your story, rewriting that story so you can make it how you wanted it to be. 
in mental health generally and, and especially in trauma, it's really important that people have agency because very often trauma is characterised by that loss of agency, you know, a, a, a terrible tragedy, accident um, happens to us or, uh, you know, with, with um, childhood trauma and abuse situations. Um, that's all about having no voice, no autonomy at a time when our, our growth and development and autonomy should be supported is taken away. There's a pretext that comes in about drugs and alcohol being things that help you with your creativity. For me, what they helped, they did initially, but that was only because they made me more comfortable in my own skin. Not that they gave me some, you know, crazy uh, path or visions of things that I wouldn't have had otherwise, but they allowed me to sit still enough to get things done. That's Chris Fleming philosopher and associate professor at the University of Western Sydney, who wrote about his addiction for the book On Drugs. He used a variety of drugs to be more comfortable with himself, and it took him a long time to change. But he's not comfortable with the term recovery. Look, part of it is all the association it drags in of, of Ellen and Oprah and Dr Phil and, and serious self-obsession and recovery speak. But I guess it also, for me, implies a kind of finality that, you know, I, you know, having had recovered, putting it in the past tense, but as long as uh, it implies an, an ongoing process, and for me that doesn't mean like relapsing and so on, but it just means being at work in my life and making the right decisions. Because recovery is not an on-off switch. It's an ongoing process. A way of changing your life to include what's happened, but not let it rule you anymore. We usually talk about repair rather than recovery, but repair is, is I, I think, for many a more acceptable term because it, it really uh, gets at the need for a sort of community collaborative process of rebuilding and reparation. For Chris, the arts encourage that way of thinking of other possibilities. The arts have been completely central to my life and to my recovery, and that probably for a few reasons, I think. One is that the arts are really good at imagining uh, different worlds, different, uh, other possibilities, um, that you can inhabit a new way of living in your head before you realise it. You know, this the arts often deal in this hypothetical mode, not this... Um, it is, but what if? And I think that the addict needs to be able to think in those terms that another kind of, another form of living is possible. For years and years, I was misconceiving addiction as something that was like an intellectual puzzle that needed to be solved. And it's not like that at all. In fact, you know, that saying, my best thing got me here. Despite all that thinking, I was killing myself and wasn't getting anywhere with it. There's a common expression in working with addiction. Your best thinking got you here. It's an expression that resonated with Chris, and he started to tell his story to work with other people to repair. Chris has written that addiction thrives on secrecy, so writing was about putting it into the world, owning up to it, and actually finding supportive listeners to his story. For Jill, that support group is important and can help us work through our trauma, but also use it as a spur for change. 
If we're to learn from trauma and if people are to be heard, then that narrative has to come into the culture. We need to be robust enough to recognise that, that things happened. And, and that's how people grow stronger from those, those traumas and experiences, not, not by burying them. The thing that we did, <laughs> I don't know, maybe being brothers and sisters, we used like a lot of, when we still do, we used a lot of black humour. Like totally, totally inappropriate things we were talking about. Like I remember one of my brothers was trying to make a, like a mix CD essentially for the memorial service for mum and dad. And like he was trying to put all this really nice, you know, um, Carol King and Bob Dylan and um, Neil Young and stuff on it. And my other brother and me and then my other brother got involved as well. We're just like putting forward all of these songs that had like, I don't know, like Burn Baby Burn and like, like all these fire related songs. And I think anybody looking at us would have just been like, what is wrong with you guys? But it was just like, it was really funny at the time. <laughs> um, so by the end of the process, yeah, I guess just keeping in really close touch with my brothers as well. Yeah. If you've experienced trauma in your life, get help. It sounds so easy to say, but everyone we spoke to for this story said that it got easier once they sought help. Art doesn't have to be about pain. And as Ella says, there's only so much you can work through with your creative practice, and the rest needs that counsellor, that good empathiser. Even a philosopher like Chris couldn't outthink his addiction and only really saw change when he went for help. It might be hard to find the right people to listen to and to empathise, but they are out there. If this segment has raised issues for you, you can call Lifeline at 131114 or go to lifeline.com.au. If you're interested in film, TV, games or screen culture, you might like to check out our sister publication, Screen Hub. It's Australia's dedicated news and jobs website for the screen industry. Members receive industry benefits and total access to the site. Join today at screenhub.com.au. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Arts Hubbub, and we'll be back next month with what's happening in the arts. If you like what you've heard, give us a rating or review in iTunes so we can keep making this podcast. Thanks to our guests, Judith Lucy, Ella Holcomb, Chris Fleming, and Professor Jill Bennett. The Arts Hubbub is produced by Michelle Macklem, Richard Watts, Sabine Briggs, and me, George Dunford. Our theme music is Chasing Waterfalls by Tim Shield. Music in this episode also by the other stars. And for all the latest news and jobs in the arts, visit us online at artshub.com.au. This podcast was produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to the Kulin Elders, past, present and emerging. Sovereignty has never been ceded. Ferns and kangaroo paws and canna lilies and stuff. They were just under the soil there and just kind of went, all right, I'm going to give it another go. It was just like it blew, it blew my mind.